All right, y'all. The book of Isaiah is before us tonight, so we better get started. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, while y'all are opening up to the book of Isaiah, you know, I thought instead of teaching, we would just read it. It's only 66 chapters. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, got, we've got quite a bit to cover. Um, but what's nice is, if y'all remember, that this survey isn't meant to be an exhaustive study of any single book. Uh, just like Judy was saying when I was having dinner, uh, Mark Ross, when he was leading a Bible moderator's class, they were going through Isaiah, and he said even with two years of studying this book, which is what they did, uh, that it still couldn't be an exhaustive study. So it's nice to remember that we're taking a bird's eye view of a very large mountain range that is Isaiah, and we're going to hopefully be able to spot and see some paths through the text that will allow us then to dig in. If we were to say, open up Isaiah in all 66 chapters of splendor that we find there, and uh, maybe we would feel like we don't get so lost sometimes, because I don't know if you've ever attempted to read Isaiah uh, kind of end to end, or you know, going through your Bible reading, which I think can even be a little bit more confusing sometimes if you're only reading it in four chapter sections, which is kind of a typical Bible reading span, or a little bit less. Things begin to kind of melt away in your memory, and so when you're in chapter, say, 63, you're wondering, well, what what happened in chapter 12? You know, you, you're trying to kind of figure these things out. And so if we have this, uh, this book laid out the way we need it to be and with our handy-dandy handout, I hope that as you're reading through maybe in your reading plan or in a Bible study or in a sermon series or something like that, you would be able to kind of place yourself in the text, maybe know where it is, know where it is in context and what in the world is going on. Okay. So Isaiah, we find him, we're, we're going back in time, back in history uh, from where we were. Because if you recall, we covered all of the historical books of the Bible already. Uh, going up to kind of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Kind of, this, is, this is kind of in the end, kind of post-exile. People are coming back. This is pre-exile. In fact, uh, um, when we begin the book of Isaiah, Samaria, Israel, hasn't fallen yet, and I know that y'all remember this, but just in case you don't, uh, after King David and King Solomon, once uh, uh, that uh, part of the monarchy was over, there was a split, right, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom being called Judah, which is to whom this book is addressed, the northern kingdom being called Israel, sometimes Samaria, uh, that is going to be a, a nation that is dealt with by some other prophets, Amos and a few others. And so we're in Judah. Uh, that's where uh, Isaiah finds himself living there. He has some relationship to the king. Uh, he might be of royal blood. Uh, he might kind of be a cousin of a cousin or something like that. Or he, at least his family, serves the royal court. Uh, the reason we know this is because he's always talking to the people in the royal court, and it's not weird. Uh, you know, when you see Elijah coming up, what's the king say? Oh, here he comes again, Elijah. You know, they, they get upset, but Isaiah is known. He's been called by God, and the people are listening, or at least they should be, and 
he has access to the kings. He's talking to multiple kings. Uh, if you see in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, if you've opened up there, we get those kings listed. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which, not Amos, by the way, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and these are the kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this places us, and you can get the time and things like that in the context portion of the handy-dandy handout, and so I won't rehash that. You can read that on your own. It's important to know, uh, but we just don't have time to cover it. Uh, but one thing that I do want to cover as we're kind of thinking about where we are in history, what Isaiah is being called to do as he's writing this extensive prophecy is uh, um, the, the content of it. What do y'all know about Isaiah? Y'all know something, right? What are some of y'all's favorite verses? Everybody knows an Isaiah verse, right? Or at least most people do. Comfort, comfort my people. That's right. A call in the servant's song for the messenger of God, the Messiah, to comfort his people. What's another one? That's right. In chapter 1, though your skin, come reason with me. Let's talk. That's what the Lord says. Though your sins are like scarlet, let's make them white as snow. Sets the stage a little bit. We'll get back to that, actually. I'm glad you said that one. Any others? Oh, yeah. There's some more that tie in as well. And we'll see that. We'll talk about that in a second. What are some other verses that y'all know? I'll keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on the Lord. 26-3. That's right. That's right. Isaiah 53, you know, that, that's that great messianic kind of revelation where it's a suffering servant now, right? That's right. That's right. Thy word shall not return void. You know, the grass withers, but the flowers fade. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Find that within the book of Isaiah. Anybody else have any? I don't want to steal your moment. And that's right. The start to, that's right. It starts to Isaiah 6. You know, Isaiah's formal call, though I believe he was probably called before that, but we see this formal calling of God in Isaiah 6 where he witnesses the grand majesty of Jesus Christ himself. The reason we know that is because the apostle John tells us that in the gospel. He says, man, you don't remember when Isaiah saw the Lord? Uh, it's very interesting to see. That's right. Certainly. Certainly. Any others? There are more. It, uh, the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the Old Testament besides the Psalms. The Psalms takes the coup de gras right there. That's in the New Testament. Uh, every book almost finds within it a citation of a psalm or a, an allusion of a psalm. But Isaiah, it is the, aside from the Psalms, most extensively quoted book. We see it for uh, Jesus' call to ministry. Just preached on it, right? In Luke, we'll get Isaiah 61. 
He says, I will, uh, uh, I've come, been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to preach the good news, to liberate the captives, set free the slaves, open the doors to the prison, all that good stuff. Uh, uh, we see, uh, uh, make way, here comes the messenger, talking about John the Baptist. Every gospel quotes that one, talking about John. Uh, we see in Hebrews, uh, you know that, that verse everybody likes to quote uh, about the weak knees, drooping knees and elbows, comes from Isaiah. Uh, over and over we see uh, from the book of Isaiah uh, the, this reality of informing the New Testament writers. Paul in First and Second Corinthians and in Romans, uh, Peter in First and Second Peter, we see it in Acts, which, of course, is written by Luke, so we see it in Luke. We see Matthew uh, almost embody the prophet Isaiah, because as you read the book of Isaiah, you'll hear Isaiah over and over saying, Behold! And then they'll say, I am the Lord your God, or something like, Behold! Behold! And then when you read the first gospel in our English translations, the gospel of Matthew, what does he do? Behold! Behold! Behold, he's crying out over and over, just like Isaiah was. And then more than that, what does Matthew do? This was written and was fulfilled, just as it was meant from the book of Isaiah. And then he quotes it. This was written and fulfilled in the book of Isaiah, right here. This was written and fulfilled. The virgin birth, the virgin shall conceive. I'm surprised no one talked about the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the King of Kings, right? The light to the Gentiles. Christmas, right? It's all here. It's all here. Remarkable. Rick, you said I didn't give you enough time. That's right. That's right. There, there is so much to be gleaned from Isaiah. You know, I mentioned this when, we taught, when I taught on Revelation. I said that for Revelation, you need to read the entirety of Scripture at least six times, and then you'll be able to recognize when John being inspired by God and then recording the words of Jesus himself, what Jesus is doing in Revelation is just reiterating the word of God as we have it. Over and over and over we see all of these citations and allusions in the book of Revelation. Well, we actually get something wonderful in the book of Isaiah because if you read the book of Isaiah, say, six times, then when you read the New Testament, you'll realize over and over and over that they're quoting and citing and alluding to Isaiah. And the revelation that they had there, the reality of God saving his people. And that's, by the way, the theme on your handy-dandy handout. God delivers his people. That's the theme of the book of Isaiah. There's more there because there's an implication, right? Just like in the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, if the Ten Commandments, uh, if one of them says don't steal, you know there's another implication. Give. You shouldn't just not steal. You should also do your best to give as you have been given. There's a reality set here. God delivers his people. And just as God delivers, if you do not seek him and if you are not saved, there is judgment that is coming because God is God. And he is the God of the universe. And this world and humanity is part of his creation. This is a massive theme that plays out. We, we love to ignore the intensity level of Isaiah because as we see all these wonderful messianic verses, of which, by the way, there are many, if you look to the back of, our, of the handout, this is, this is by far 
the least comprehensive job I've done. I had to hack and slash that we might maintain our wonderful one-pagers because uh, every chapter, uh, every section, it seems, is filled with the prophecy of God as Redeemer, as God as Savior of His people, revelation of Jesus Christ Himself. It's wonderful, and we'll talk about that more as we go through it, but to see that part of the book of Isaiah and to ignore the reality that God is sovereign and that God desires righteousness. And if there is no righteousness in us, well, then there is condemnation. We, we do a disservice to about half the book because God is coming and God desires righteousness and we are not righteousness. That's the good news is that Jesus is providing a bridge to this holiness. He's dying for us after living a perfect life. Isaiah 53, right? He was wounded for our transgressions, right? On him were laid the iniquity of us all. He's taking these things for us. We see that in the book of Isaiah, but we see that for a reason. Because God is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And if we are not ready, we'll be destroyed. It's scary stuff, apart from Jesus. It's wonderful stuff with Jesus. And that's what we see in the book of Isaiah I thought, since it's so long, we might do a couple things tonight. We'll do the bookend treatment. If you recall, that's how I typically do these. We'll look at the beginning, we'll look at the end. It tells us, essentially, all that's going on. Then, we might just briefly uh, look, if we have time, into some of the very obvious moments, say Isaiah 53, Isaiah 40, 41, some of the suffering servant passages, some of the servant song passages, to see what Isaiah has for us there. Before we look at the bookends, I would draw your attention to an easy outline of the book of Isaiah. That's on the first page. This is an easy outline. I got this from a guy named Alec Motier. This is not the first time I've talked about him, won't be the last time. A wonderful commentator. Uh, He wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah meant to be used as a devotional. If you want to go through the book of Isaiah and you want a companion, Alec Motier is your man. Uh, He is an excellent biblical commentator, and his work on Isaiah is second to none. And so this is his outline that he uses it. I agree with it, uh, and it is a a, a good one. I paraphrased uh, his heading titles for our own use. So these aren't his words, but this is his breakdown of the text. So... We get Isaiah 1 through 5, and if we march through the text just in the flow of the narrative, and this is important, and I'll kind of mention why in a moment, we get Isaiah 1 through 5, that's the front matters. Where are we, and why? Why is Isaiah getting called in Isaiah chapter 6? It's a wonderful chapter. Who will answer my call? I will. Why do you need to call in the first place? Well, Isaiah 1 through 5 answers it. God's people need saving. We need to be whiter than snow, right, Sam? That's what we were talking about. You know, we need to be cleansed. And so we see this in Isaiah 1 through 5. God's people need saving. Well, Isaiah 6 through 12 answers firmly what God's design is. God's people get saved. Uh, Hey, ask me a question, anything you want. That's what he told the king through Isaiah. Uh, uh, King Ahaz said, I don't want to test the Lord. The Lord said, why are you being so silly? Let me tell you something. I'll tell you how I'm going to save you. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And so this reality is that uh, 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 even in the beginning, in, in Isaiah 6 through 12, we need saving, 1 through 5. God's people get saved in Jesus, Emmanuel. We see the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. We see all of these things within 6 through 12. We see a culminating song. In chapter 12, we'll just flip there real quick just because it's short and good. I won't read the whole thing. It's just six verses, though, and it's beautiful. Chapter 12. This is, this is at the end after we see that, that uh, this Messiah is coming, that he is going to be something more special than just man because a virgin is conceiving. He's going to be uh, God is what uh, we see in that same, uh, that same section. Um, Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. What else is it? Chapter 9, that's right. I'm going to read chapter 12 in a second. but Wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? Everlasting father. Who are we talking about? Is this a human or is this something else? Or is it both? That's what we're seeing. We're seeing this reality begin to play out. We're seeing that this is going to be a a Davidic king, that this anointed one, this Messiah, this this miracle baby, this something more than man is also going to be king. In fact, a king from the line of David. In fact, a king from the line of David that's going to fulfill that promise from God to David that said, you'll never lack a ruler on the throne, ever. Ever. It's this king that fulfills that promise, Jesus. And so we see all these things culminating in this wonderful song in chapter 12. God's people get saved. What's he say at the end? Uh, uh, This is verse 3. With you, uh, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done graciously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So God's people get saved. They needed saving. They get saved. Now we bounce into chapter 13 through 27. God's got the whole world in his hands, right? You know that song. I feel like I sing it too many times because Mary Emmeline really likes it. We do the world, then we do mama and daddy, then we do Mary Emmeline and Isaac, then we do our extended family, then we do our church family, then we do Miss Jan particularly. Uh, (laughs) uh, We do everybody. It's incredible how long we can go, but it's true. God's got the whole world. In his hands. And that's what we see in chapters 13 through 27. Because all of a sudden, we zoom out. And God is revealing judgment on nations, including Judah, his own. God's got the whole world in his hands. And he will deal with them as he chooses. Chapters 28 through 37, God's especially got. His people in his hands. So it makes sense, right? God's got the whole world in his hands. Well, that also implies that he's got his people, right? Because we know there is a people. We know there is a remnant. And we'll see that when we look at the bookends. We'll see the remnant. Uh, But God's especially got his people 
in his hands. And then we see in chapters 38 through 55, that includes uh, a lot of that talk about Jesus again. If you recall, the, uh, if you know about this, you know, the, the servant songs, comfort, comfort my people. Uh, you hear all of these things. This is where we see Isaiah 53, that great prophecy about Jesus Christ uh, and, and intense prophecy about the, the, the depth and the level to which Jesus must go to cleanse us from such sin. God's people need God to especially have them in his hands. They, they really need God. This is where we see Babylon enter into the picture, right? We had Syria, that got a little intense. Then we have Assyria, that gets even more intense. And then we have Babylon, that's where the hammer is dropped. That's where God drops the hammer of judgment on his people for their, for their lawlessness, their sin, their idolatry. And you find this in Isaiah. If you want to talk about idolatry, the Lord, the Lord asks his people, bring me any idol that you have. Set him up against me and let's see who wins. He says it over and over in the end of Isaiah. These people have been lawless, but God doesn't stop there, right? God's people need God to especially have them in his hands, and he does. He says, though judgment is coming through Babylon, I will deliver you. I will anoint Cyrus the Great even. Pagan of pagans. I don't care. I will use him. He will be destroyed in the end for his iniquity. I will use him to deliver you. And so God's people need God, and he is there. And then we see in chapters 56 through 66, God's got salvation in his hands. And that's a completed salvation, by the way. That's a, we have finished this thing done. That's a new heavens and new earth kind of salvation. An end of the whole story kind of salvation. One where there is no more tears, no more weeping or mourning. For those things passed away, behold, the new has come. And so we see a, an easy outline. There's a lot in there. So much so that some people want to act like three people wrote the book. Some people want to act like two people wrote the book. They say that, well, there's too much covered. How could he be alive for the whole thing? It's an easy answer. He wasn't alive for the whole thing. He was prophesying things that God gave him. He wasn't alive when Babylon came, destroyed Judah and Jerusalem. He was dead. But God had given him that word to reveal not only the exile, but Jesus Christ that the people needed to see in the moment. And so you could see that in the context portion. I briefly talk about it. You can find that articles about that as well uh, if you want me to provide you some sources and stuff like that, I can get it to you if you want to do more reading or if you've ever heard that. I wouldn't worry about it if you haven't. Okay. Let's look at the bookends. And we'll go quickly through these. Again, we can't cover everything, but remember the goal is to dive in. And so with this easy outline, we can at least begin to see what's happening. I use kind of not silly terminology, but... Uh, kind of ringy terminology, you know, songy, right? God's got the whole world. But it helps us as we look at it to see what the main thrust is. Because sometimes, say, for instance, when we're in Isaiah chapter 13 through 27, and, you know, we're in, we'll say, chapter, 
Chapter 23, an oracle concerning Tyre and Sidon. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them, be still, O inhabitants of the coast. Who in the world's Tyre and Sidon? Who cares? What are we talking about? This at least provides you the reality of what's going on from the top. And you can dig into the text from here because we see what's happening. God's got the whole world in his hands, including Tyre and Sidon, which, by the way, is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so, and by the way, also this prophecy came true, not here uh, in this time later. Uh, it was absolutely laid waste and actually salted. The ground was salted. You can just look it up. It's quite remarkable. But uh, anyway, so this will help you with that bird's eye view, this easy outline. Okay, let's go to the bookends. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 1. Where does this thing all begin? And as we look at these bookends, we will get an understanding and idea of what God is seeking to reveal through Isaiah, because a lot of the meat of the text can be found within these bookends. It's remarkable. Let's, uh, let's read the first chapter up to verse 20. Uh, and it's, it's not too bad of a read, so don't get worried, because it's prophecy, so the, uh, the verses are shorter. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll start with verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation! a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, 
you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go to chapter 2. We'll just read five verses, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Sounds, uh, sounds double-faced to me. <clears throat> Lord's talking about condemnation. Then he says that this place is going to be where everybody comes because God is there. How can it be both? We see righteousness and justification here at the same time. And the people must be asking, how can this be? How in the world can this happen? Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. What we see here is a gospel presentation in the Old Testament. If you wanted to share the gospel in the Old Testament, you didn't know Jesus' name yet. But... Jesus was clearly there. And if you wanted to see it, it was how Yahweh delivered his people out of Egypt. That was the moment, the deliverance moment in the Old Testament, the Exodus. And so you see here, as we are looking at this, saying, wow, the Lord is calling us out. We're trying to do right, but we've fallen only into tradition. It's interesting how he says it. These people would have looked good on the outside, but they were not doing right on the inside. And so then we see the Lord's going to be here, though, and everyone's going to want to come. So you need to be ready. Lord, what? And then we see here, by the way, God is going to cleanse you. That's how it's going to happen. I am going to cleanse you whiter than snow. I will wash you, O daughters of Zion. I will wash you. I will take the bloodstains away from all the turmoil and the pain and the hurt that you have experienced and caused. It's the gospel. Let's go to chapter 66. We'll kind of wrap all this together, and then maybe we can just talk if y'all have some places you want to go, things like that. 
I hope you noticed, by the way, the peoples coming as you're flipping to 66. Wasn't just Jews. Wasn't just inhabitants of Judah. Wasn't just inhabitants of Jerusalem. The peoples are coming. The peoples. It's interesting. All right, let's look at chapter 66, verse 15. We'll read to the end of the book, and then we'll talk. I still hear some rustling, so I'll wait for a moment. Now, this is coming at the end of the book. If you recall, we've marched then from the need. We see the need answered in verse, chapter 6 through 12. We see God's sovereignty. He's got it all in his hands. He's looking at his people particularly. Then we see that we really need him to do that. We really need him to look at us particularly because our sin is great. And now we see a culmination in 56 through 66. God's got salvation in his hands. All right, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, Lude, who draw the bow, uh, the bow to Tubal and Yavon, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests, And for Levites, says the Lord, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. What? When's the last time you read the last chapter of Isaiah? What? What intensity? The gospel is there, by the way, but it's hard for us to see it because of God's magnitude and righteousness. Because we see All of the nations coming to worship him. All flesh will come and worship. I kind of did a play on words, by the way, for the remember passage, for the remember uh, little sentence. God has a people. God has a plan of salvation for his people. It's It's kind of a play on words because God has a people, and that people is everybody. Everybody is his because he is creator and we are creature. doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. God's still God. And that's what he's saying here. And he's saying, if you do not come at the call, you will still glorify him. But it will not be how you desire. 
you will be lying dead in the field with a worm that devours forever. He's talking about hell, Sheol, Hades, however you want to say it, that you find it in Scripture. It's this reality. But God is saying that he will be glorified. What do we do with this? I thought that this was the book that revealed the gospel. You know, Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's, uh, um, uh, one of his protégés, while he was doing his funeral service, Martin Luther's funeral service, said that uh, Isaiah... Uh, let's see who it was. It was Isaiah, John, Paul uh, that wrote in there, and Martin Luther. Of course, it's his funeral. That's why he would do that. They are the ones who proclaim the gospel the strongest. <laughs> uh, it's kind of, you know, he was kind of being a little intense for Martin Luther, but he included Isaiah. This guy, this reformer, included Isaiah in the revelation of the gospel. But did he read chapter 66? Did he read the first part of chapter One, he did, because God's sovereignty, God's control, the reality that God is the one who is saving, who is providing for his people, that is what we need. We need God to have us in our hands, especially, or this will be our lot. God is calling through Isaiah. Isaiah is trying as best he can through the revelation to reveal God's majesty If we forget the sovereignty of God, we forget salvation. And Isaiah does not want to forget salvation. Let's look quickly. Let me just go through some of these that you might see some of this. Some of these will be familiar to you. Some of them, uh, they won't. If you're thinking, wow, Jeremiah, what a downer. Thank you, I think. Look at what we see in the book of Isaiah. Look at the solid rock verses. Chapter 118, though your sins are like scarlet, white as snow. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, woe is me, I am lost. That's what Isaiah said. What happened? Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's that promise to David, by the way. David's dad is Jesse. Chapter 12. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Chapter 12. With uh, Chapter 25, rather. He will swallow up death forever. Listen to that. Chapter 25. He will swallow up death forever. Chapter 26. Your dead shall live. This is the Old Testament, right? Their bodies shall rise. Chapter 28, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a precious cornerstone. Speaking of Jesus, that's the rock that all of this is built on. Chapter 29, there uh, there this says the Lord who redeemed Abraham. Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. Even when we stray, God's bringing us back to understanding. Chapter 30, there the Lord waits to be gracious to you, to show mercy to you. You shall weep no more. Your eyes shall see your teacher. The Lord binds up the brokenness of his people. Chapter 32, a king will reign in righteousness. Chapter 32, my people will abide in peaceful habitation. Chapter 33, the Lord is our judge. He's our lawgiver. He's our king. And what does he do? He saves us. Chapter 35, the ransomed of the Lord shall return with singing. Chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. Why? Her iniquity is pardoned. 
chapter 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. And by the way, in that verse right there, he will tend his flock, says that he will hold him close to his bosom. Chapter 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall mount up with wings like the eagles. He's talking about us trying as hard as we can and getting tired. And he says, don't worry, I've got it. Chapter 41, fear not, I'm with you. I will uphold you. Chapter 42, my servant is here. He's talking about Jesus. Chapter 43, the same thing. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I've even called you by name. You're mine. Besides me, there's no one who can save you. Chapter 44, I've blotted out every transgression like a cloud and your sins like mist. Chapter 45, Israel saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Chapter 46, I bring near my righteousness. I will put salvation in Zion. That's Jerusalem, by the way. Chapter 49, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I can't get rid of you. I see you every time I work. Chapter 51, for the Lord comforts Zion and makes her wilderness like Eden. Eden, by the way, if you recall, is pre-fall. There's no sin there. Chapter 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Chapter 55, everyone come and listen to this. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And by the way, when God promises something, he promises on himself. So he gives you a double comfort. God's God. If he just says it, it'll happen. If he promises, well, that's just more comfort for us. We know now two ways that he's going to do his thing. Chapter 57, Oh, uh, let's go to 56. Sorry. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts to Israel declares, I will gather yet others. There are more family members out there. And he is getting them, not us, by the way. He's bringing his people home. Chapter 57. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Chapter 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your people shall all be righteous. Recall that first chapter. You are not righteous. What is this? Oh, everyone shall be righteous. Chapter 61, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bind up, to have liberty to those who are oppressed. Opening of the prison. That's Jesus, by the way. He says that in Luke. Chapter 62, behold, your salvation comes. You shall be called sought out. God is seeking you. Chapter 64, you are our father. We are clay and you are our potter. Whoa, that's pretty close to sovereignty. I don't know if I like that. But we are all the work of your hand and God loves the works of his hand. Chapter 65, I create new heavens and a new earth. Before they call, I will answer. Listen to that. You don't even have to call out. He is answering you because he is the one who is saving you. Chapter 66, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And then we come to the end. All flesh shall come to worship before me. So we see God's righteous side and we see God's merciful side together. This is not exhaustive. Can you believe it? It is incredible to see, and yet we should not ignore that God is sovereign over his people. He saves, but we mustn't put God in a box. We must see who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, 
Thank you for the book of Isaiah. Thank you for its intensity, that it reveals you in a wonderful way, a way so wonderful that uh, we see saints from of old, even those saints carried along by the Holy Spirit to record words for our benefit. Father, we thank you that this book is here. I pray that as we dive into it, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a year from now, maybe five years from now, that we would recall this reality that you indeed are in control and that you save your people. Lord, may we always see you for who you are, a majestic, righteous, omnipotent, just God. And yet, Father, may we see ourselves for who we are, sinners in need of salvation. God, thank you that you reveal, that you provide such a thing. Mercy and grace and love is not void because of your righteousness. And we see that in your son, Jesus, who you sent to die for us. God, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.